This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Springtime must be imminent. And you can tell because city council is debating what to do with Hess Street again, which happens just about every year. Uh, of course, about the extra policing, who's going to pay for it. You know the drill, right? And it was a topic of discussion yesterday at City Hall. I think they've got it resolved. We hope it's going to be resolved. Jason Fire is the counselor for Ward 2 downtown, which, of course, includes Hess Village. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Jay, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us again. And thank you, Bill. Well, it's an annual tradition. Let's talk about Hess Street every spring, right? <laughs> I, I wish I could say that uh, there is final resolve, but uh, no, I think we're going to have one more kick at this uh, with uh, yesterday's unanimous decision to uh, um, take a look at it during the uh, 2019 budget process. That was part of the decision anyway. Though. Well, talk to us about what happened yesterday and, and, and the decision that was finally uh, reached. So we had a report from Ken Leander, it's our director of licensing, and the former deputy uh, chief of police, who uh, actually uh, that former role and his current role has made him the perfect point person on the Hetz file, and he has really moved the yardsticks with his staff in the last couple of years, so i got to first and foremost thank him. But uh, when we last uh, looked at this issue, as you'll recall, you and I talked about it, we uh, offered a new uh, formula for the 50-50 split, and uh, the chief of police, Eric Gert, myself, and the... Uh, uh, chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board got together. Uh, about, I think the final meeting was just a few hours before a council resolution that uh, said, "Okay, let's do the 50-50 split. We'll reduce the number of officers, both the Hamilton Police Services and the merchants who work closely with the Hamilton Police Services." And Hess Village agreed that the complement didn't mean need to be to maximum ten anymore. It turned out to be uh, three and a shared cost on the sergeant, so half of the cost of a, a sergeant to implement the uh, seasonal paid duty program. The other part of that report, which was, uh, you know, the big part of the conversation yesterday, was that Mr. Leanderts, our director, would come back to us after engaging with the um, 9 to 11, it all depends, uh, merchants and operators and owners in Hess Village on how that formula will be uh, divvied up between those folks specifically, should all folks uh, in the entertainment district pay a portion and thus reduce the, the, you know, the fees uh, proportionately, or uh, do you just get rid of it altogether? There's all sorts of uh, issues and questions asked when Ken Leanderts got together with uh, primarily the operators. All the other owners were also invited, but not too many took... Uh, took uh, Ken up on the offer to sit down and talk about a potential extra tax as minimal as it would have been if you spread it out over every operator. So anyway, the report comes back, a couple of delegates, uh, both uh, singing the same song uh, uh, with respect to, uh, you know, their portion, how they feel, you know, that, that familiar refrain that you and I have talked about for years now about this extra tax that's exclusive only to uh, this one entertainment district in all of the nation, forget the city. That was also discussed and, and part of the report as well uh, as, a, as a major concern. And then what had happened was, and this is key, Bill, this report on page uh, five of seven, um, second to last paragraph, indicated something that really, I think, um, pricked up the ears of everybody on committee that even hasn't been following it as closely as someone like myself or maybe Ward 1's Councillor Aiden Johnson. And that was this that it's actually costing more to regulate, to enforce uh, legal fees, staffing fees, uh, time uh, at licensing tribunals uh, to, to impl Im implement this current plan, which is approximately a 50K, 50K split. It's costing the taxpayers more to implement and regulate 
than it would just to, for a one time anyway, as we look at this in the next budget process, to actually just pay the 50K out of a reserve, not levy impacted, for this particular season ahead. And in the interim, figure out a way to make this part of the budget discussion with both Hamilton Police Services and, of course, the City of Hamilton. And that, that, that was, the, I think, really the only whereas in my motion that said, in an interim period for this coming season, let's save the taxpayers some money because it actually costs more to do all these things and pay all these lawyers and licensing staff and, and, and everyone else when it comes t- time to, uh, to not only regulate but uh, enforce through a licensing regime. All right, well, that's the dollars and cents of it. But I guess the more elementary question here, and, and I know you've tried to get the, some answers to this, is it even necessary anymore? Well, I mean, that's the prevailing argument. It has been for some time. And when you can look at the performance and, and what the, you know, Dean Collette, again, offering a great delegation and putting things in perspective, from first-hand perspective, longtime owner down there with Sizzle and Coy, uh, mentioning that this the days of 10,000 to 15,000 people per week in Hess Village are long over. Uh, the, the entertainment dollar is being spread out through various sectors, not labeled entertainment districts, but throughout our downtown, throughout our city. Well, that's, that's that, and that's the point. And you and I talked about this, I guess it was last spring. Is, yes. is, is there a need for this any more than there is, say, on Augusta Street, where there's also a great entertainment district, or any a number of other ones that are starting to pop up in different areas of the city right now? Yeah, and that is a very important question. I mean, you... you you can expect that that will be analyzed to a much greater extent and perhaps not just from the uh, uh, bar owner's side or the restaurant owner's side, and that's another key bill. There's way more restaurants than we were talking about back in the days where ten to 15,000 people were showing up on the weekend, um, and, and one that will be more scrutinized and analyzed by our city staff and perhaps even Hamilton Police Services. So I, I, I think that it's a different era. There's, uh, uh, you know, you, you can, you know, you're in the news game, you're in the talk game, but you're at one of our, you are at our premier uh, news talk radio station, and you know that, uh, you know, these stories of uh, concern from uh, uh, policing uh, elements uh, have waned in ways where we don't even really hear about it much anymore. So it, it's a different crowd. I mean, that there, there, Dean had rightly pointed out, we still cater to the students and the nurses and the shift workers who want to go and blow off steam and dance. There's still those uh, opportunities in Hess Village, but it's nowhere near what it used to be. And I, I've been working closely. They have uh, de facto George Street Merchants Association now with a really strong focus on, on pedestrianizing and getting back to uh, all of those uh, elements that were the focus of uh, George Street. Uh, some years ago when we, you know, cobblestoned it and put the beautiful uh, plants and lighting in and everything else, explore uh, ways, and we actually have some funding in in aesthetically improving what we put into place years ago, but also the focus on the foodie scene, the restaurant scene. It's primarily all restaurants along George Street, where back in the day you didn't see that. So the, the, the owners themselves have seen that this is a better focus for them. And so that, that has attributed to the fact that uh, we are experiencing much less issues or perceived issues as it relates to Hess Village than we ever have in the past. All right. And, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, this was the committee level. It's got to go to council. We'll see what happens right. there. Jay, thanks so much for the update on this. appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. All right. Listen, I, I, Councillor Farr had mentioned uh, the owners themselves and, and, and their uh, perspective on what's been happening here, because this has been, as I mentioned, rather cynically, but I mean, it's true. It's been going on for years and years and years. And in that time, I think anybody who's been there 
and and gone to one of the restaurants there uh, understands that the character of Hess Street, I think, has changed over the last four or five years. Let me bring one of those owners here to tell you about this. Dean Collette is the owner of Sizzle and Coy, uh, one of the busier establishments in Hess Street. Dean, thanks so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, hi, Bill. Thanks for having Listen, me. Listen, you were at the meeting yesterday. I'll ask you the same question. I just yep. asked Councillor Farr. Is this extra policing on Hess Street even necessary anymore? Well, I mean, I, the debate yesterday wasn't about whether or not there was whether or not the police uh, <clears throat> presence is necessary. It's that was decided last year, and um, you know, I, I don't think it's really productive to go back and and rehash that debate. If you recall, there was a there was a motion passed to uh, remove the police uh, pay duty program. Yeah, and then there was a YouTube video that came out. And part of the YouTube video, they showed that a guy had put his fist up a horse's butt and got kicked and knocked out. And everybody thought, oh, if that's what's going on down there, well, it turns out that that YouTube video was a farce. It was just a mockumentary. The guy that actually made the video made a subsequent video uh, after he found out that, that that had become part of the debate and 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 was surprised himself because that just flat out never happened, which is often the case with a lot of things in Hess Village. Um, now, having said that, you know, it, when you have a large concentration of people, um, police presence is, is invariably going to be necessary, just as it is in other parts of the city. Um, the thing about it is, nowhere else in the city, and in fact nowhere else in the country, is our, our uh, individual operators levied an extra tax for that. Um, we already pay over $300,000 in taxes towards the city, um, not to mention all of the muni- the uh, provincial taxes as, as part of our HST remittances, all of the federal taxes, all the people that we employ. It was just it was a it was an imbalanced and unfair practice from the beginning. Well, and that's the point that I tried to make, and and I know you and I have had that discussion in the past, and and you know I've been to other communities. I mean, you know, London's a university town, and and you know that area, Dean. I mean, right downtown at Richmond and Oxford Street is is the bar district in London, and and I actually have talked to some of the bar owners there. They don't get pit charged extra for that. I mean, there are always going to be crowds there because it's a popular place. But, but why the extra tax? I think there's a there's a philosophical question that needs to be addressed here. Well, and, and uh, exactly. And I mean, if you look at like, let's just take Westdale for instance. Sure. Right? During certain times of the year, Frosh Week or St. Patrick's Day, or you know, there's a there's a large police presence there because there's so many students that live there, and when they're having their you know their their uh, social gatherings and their parties. It's not like all of a sudden we're asking Westdale homeowners to spend more money on their tax. Um, you know, look at at the end of the day, um, what people need to understand is is that a couple of things. First of all, I'm so tired of having this conversation because it seems like this is the thing that people focus on with Hess, and that's that's to, to our detriment. And it's unfair sure it is, yeah. because. The fact is, there's 10 restaurants there that have a hard time drawing an older crowd now because all we see, ever seem to hear about with Hess is something to do with police. And that, and that sort of creates this, this image of Hess that frankly isn't true. If you go there on a Friday at 5 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the evening or 10 o'clock in the evening, it's, it's, it's actually the nicest patio street in the city. And I challenge anybody to say different. And if you want to meet me there in the middle of June and take a look at it, you'll see why I, I'm, I say that with all honesty. But the thing about it is, yes, there over the years there have been a couple of bad operators, and frankly, um, the bad operators generally don't tend to be Hamiltonians. They're people that come from uh, that come from from different cities, and they come in and they and and when they operate when they operate the place 
irresponsibly, what they end up being shocked to find out is that we're the most heavily scrutinized area in the city with regards to our liquor license. And invariably, the the, the bylaw people and the AGCO and the police end up getting rid of them. And that's happened. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, us that are the good operators, we welcome that. And we're happy for that because, like, for us, our brand is important. Hess, Hess Village used to connotate a very positive reaction from all Hamiltonians. Now we, have a, we still have a very positive app, uh, reaction from students and from certain segments and people that actually take the time to go there. But people that haven't been there in a long time, their only, their only uh, reaction to Hess Village is what they read in the paper with regards to policing. So their, their image of Hess Village is skewed, and frankly, it's skewed incorrectly. Well, sure it is, and that's part of the problem here, isn't it, Dean, that, that there is a, a perception here that uh, it's, it's a place where thousands of people gather on the weekend and they just get inebriated and act like idiots. It's a restaurant yeah. district now, the same as the Bytown Market is in Ottawa, the same as in, in so many other different cities right now. I, right. I, there, there, of course, there's alcohol consumption going on there, but I, I would say no more so than in a lot of other areas in the city, and, and I don't see those people getting charged. And I know you don't want to drag that discussion up again, but right. I think city councilors have to be aware of that. And the problem I've got with this is the people that are going to vote on this probably haven't been down to Hess Village themselves. Well, and that, and that is that is an issue. And, and I will say, though, that, you know, I, I did speak to the planning committee yesterday. I, I believe there's seven councillors on it. Yeah. I, I don't recall exactly. But frankly, they, they were, it was a positive meeting. They asked uh, pointed and some tough questions, but they, they had me at the podium for, I'd say, close to 30 minutes. And it was a good discussion. And, and they were, you know, there was, there was, <clears throat> there was real discussion. And, and that's all that I can really ask for from the councillors at the end of the day is that they make informed decisions. And I, I think we're at that point now. And, and it is my hope, Bill. Like, I, I tend to come on your show once a year to talk about this. My hope it's, is it's that a, it's I a get spring to tradition, later Dean. on in the summer to talk about a festival or something because there's so much more to Hess Village than a policing issue. Well, I think so, too, and I just hope that they're aware of that. And, and I guess my concern at this stage is uh, it seems as if there was a resolution to this thing yesterday, but, of course, the, the Greater Council is going to de- de- debate this, and, and they've turned it over in the past, and I just, I'd just i hate to see that happen again because it's going to get right back to square one then. Well, and that's my hope, too, Bill. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's you know yesterday was a positive step forward, but as Councillor Farr said, it's not done yet. We'll wait to see what happens at Council next week. I'm optimistic, but at the end of the day, I'm also realistic. I just... I just feel like it's time for us to put this issue to bed once and for all. Here, here, and uh, we'll see what happens next week. Dean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. I'm glad you had me on. Dean Collette, who was the owner of Sizzle & Coy and obviously has a vested interest in what's going on there. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We know that uh, that pot shops are going to be coming up here. That's P-O-T, not P-O-P pot shops uh, because of federal and provincial regulations that uh, medical marijuana is going to be licensed. There are going to be stores where you can buy this stuff. The LCBO is supposed to be involved in this. And it's not without controversy, as you might expect. Uh, We don't know where they're going to be right now. There are some operations that are in existence right here in the city now. They are technically illegal, and and police are doing what they are supposed to do, I guess, in those circumstances. In fact, we've talked with the managers of a couple of them on this program. Uh, one of them up on Concession Street just a couple of weeks ago, and there's a great deal of controversy about that uh, opening up. A number of area residents were concerned about that. Well, the Board of Education's got a stake in this, too, and uh, they'd like to have a voice in uh, location, location, location when these things start opening up. Todd White is the chairman of the board for the uh, Hamilton Board of Education, also the trustee for Ward 5, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Morning, Todd. How are you doing today? 
Good morning, Bill. Good. Let's let's talk a little bit about this about uh, about location and 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 I, I referenced the one that is up on Concession Street, a medical marijuana operation that's up there now, uh, which is not too far, just a few blocks away from uh, from one of your schools. Okay. Uh, and so let, let's let's talk a little bit about this because this is a, a rather unique situation, but it's something that I think a lot of folks would rather have the discussion about now instead of after the fact and say, "Boy, I wish we'd thought that uh, you know in the in the process." Now, the talk, what, what are the board's concerns, if any, about this? Yeah, so obviously we have a number of concerns in terms of uh, any exposure or access that any students may have um, to these shops or, of course, you know, friends or whomever um, buying certain products for them. So we really want to make sure that we have a, a smart uh, and, and uh, strategic approach in terms of how we have these conversations with our students. And, of course, the locations uh, and that visual uh, could have an impact on our, on our student populations. Uh, well, give us some instances, because I know we're talking about the medical marijuana operations, but uh, I would think that your concern is not exclusive to that. You're, you're exactly right. So that, that's the one piece, and why this conversation you know, tends to be the, the issue of the day, um, but not to sensationalize just marijuana. When you think of all of the different services and products that are available that are inappropriate for students, uh, that list is, is quite extensive. So it's a conversation that I think, you know, socially we need to have, but not exclusive just to cannabis, but to um, alcohol, to uh, gambling, to tattoo parlors, to adult entertainment stores. The, the list goes on uh, where there's certain stores that are inappropriate for students. Let's have the bigger conversation, um, not necessarily just cannabis. And, and uh, we have to understand exactly where you're coming from on this, because I, uh, I know there's going to be some fear-mongering about this, and, 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 and I think that's part of the broader discussion. I mean, when these things are going to start opening up, and it's probably going to happen uh, sometime this summer, uh, but at the same time, there's a concern about who's going to be there, what products are going to be available, but, uh, and, and I think there has to be some clear language about what's going to be happening. But by the same token, uh, I guess you don't want students wandering across the road or down the street and popping their head in there or hanging out there, uh, no matter what the product is. I mean, I think you and I talked about a situation I remember from years ago uh, with one of your schools. Uh, there was a variety store right across the road. I mean, they were selling, you know, paraphernalia, you know, and, and I think this is wrong. It's, it's just, a, I guess it was legal for them to do it, but wrong location. And I know there were an awful lot of students from the elementary school across the road that would walk in there on a regular basis and, and be exposed to this, maybe even buy the okay. stuff for all I know. Yeah, and, and when, when you think of, uh, if you think back to when you were a student and, you know, you're, you're pretty aware of what you can see, you know, in or around your school, in, in your walk every day to school, for instance. And, and there's other, you know, situations just like that. It could be a variety store uh, selling paraphernalia, selling cigarettes. Um, obviously, that's legal and it's happened for forever. Um, but then, of course, you have examples, and we've received complaints in the past, for instance, where there's an adult entertainment store, for instance, uh, right across the street from Parkdale Elementary School. Um, you can see it right from the front door. You know, so so there, there's a number of, of concerns like this where you ask yourself the question, how did this how did this take place? You know, what, what type of consideration was made, and and th th that's you know a big part of the conversation. At the same time, though, uh, the province has committed to having these consultations, uh, speaking to school boards, and I think that's important. Um, but I would say even more important, what about the resources around having conversations with students around uh, mental health, addiction, you know, issues like that? It's not just about 
how far is that location from a school? You know, there's some really, really serious issues. So to to have a conversation that's simply about location, I think, is can be a little bit short-sighted. Well, and we saw this with the tobacco situation some years ago, and uh, and, and there have been some tough regulations that are in play, and I'm, I'm glad to see that happening. But uh, we know that, for instance, I mean, it's illegal to sell, for instance, cigarettes, and certainly in this case, medical marijuana, to, to kids. That's not going to happen. At least we hope it's not going to happen, and I don't think it will. Uh, these are legitimate business operations, and I'm sure 99.9% of them are going to abide by the law. But we also know that there are people that will go in there and buy stuff for others, uh, you know, as, as third-party members. And that happened with cigarettes on a consistent basis, probably still does. Uh, and and would, I guess the fact that that's going to be nearby makes you think that, well, that's a possibility. And you want to t- see what you can do to mitigate that happening. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's where the consultations are important. But to have a general consultation, you know, I, I tend to question the effectiveness of that versus a, a case-by-case scenario. Because as you know, it really depends on the development in a particular area. So if you were to ask me or I were to ask you, is one kilometer too close or too far for a pot shop uh, in proximity to an elementary school? Well, a kilometer can be very different if you're in the middle of Flamborough where there is very little development around or you're downtown Hamilton and there's superstores and strip malls all over the place. You know, it really depends on a case-by-case basis, you know, the culture of of the the smaller community, you know, a number of considerations. So, you know, from a board perspective, can you put a number on a safe distance? Uh, I think it's going to come down to a really case-by-case scenario whether it's appropriate or not. And, and and therein lies the concern here about having that dialogue, and, and I guess the people that are going to be making these decisions, uh, taking that information into consideration. Now, you haven't had any of that discussion yet, have you? No, so we haven't received any, any information from the province at this point. Obviously, Hamilton is not on uh, that list in terms of those uh, initial municipalities that were are receiving a uh, pot shop. So, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't come to the forefront here in Hamilton quite yet. We, we know there's quite a bit of provincial chatter. The Ontario School Boards Association has weighed in on it. Um, a number of school boards have weighed in on it uh, and, and are expressing concerns. And I think the concerns are valid, but I think you want to have meaningful conversation as well. And right now it just tends to be the distance you know, from an elementary school. And I think there's some, some bigger issues to, to address in, a, in addition to the location. Well, and I understand there's some people that are just going to be philosophically opposed to this. Uh, you know, some people are philosophically opposed to alcohol consumption, too. It's a reality. It's going to happen. And the best thing that we, I guess, can do at this stage is to try to have some say in how it's being controlled and where it's going to be done. And that's exactly it. So, and that's what we're watching. So how, how, how like you said earlier, what are the products that are going to, that are going to be available? What does the access look like? What, what does the front of the store look like? Um, if a student's trying to peek through a window, like you said, um, it, it's, th- it's those type of issues. And then, of course, it's the conversations we have in our schools. If this is going to become a, a social norm, not for obviously underage children or students, but at the same time, if it is a social norm, what are we doing to prepare our students for that reality? Ultimately, our job is, as educators and a school board are to prepare students for the real world. <laughs> so, so we have to address many of these issues um, uh, head on. So that's, that's entirely what uh, we're already discussing as a school board. Um, how are we going to talk to our students? What resources are we going to deploy? Um, a lot of very important questions. Well, and I know that, as you mentioned, this is maybe not happening in Hamilton right now because we're not in the, in the first round of these things. But in the cities where they have had the discussion, Toronto and Kingston come to mind, 
Uh, I know that they have talked about some potential locations in those communities, and already some of the parents are rising up and say, whoa, 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 that's too close to where my kid goes to well, school. So well, i, I got to wonder, Todd, if they're even going to listen to you. Well, well, and, and this is this is the other thing. I, I said this to, to someone I was talking about this with uh, yesterday, and they said, well, are they going to send us a potential location and ask us for feedback? Because what are we going to do? Provide them our, our, our seal of approval and say we like a pot shop in that area? <laughs> you know, like... It, in terms of genuine consultation, we can express some concerns, but are, are they suggesting that school boards are going to be selecting locations? You know, let, let's, let's treat it for what will, or at least treat it and look at it, how it will actually work. Um, there, there are a lot of concerns there, because obviously if you're going to ask for our feedback, we want it to be genuine. But at the same time, you know, are we going to go to and hold our own consultations with our communities, with our parents, and ask them if they want a pot shop? I think the overwhelming answer in pretty much every case is going to be no. <laughs> So what is what are those effective parameters going to be and what's it, how is it going to actually appear? What are the types of questions school boards will be asked? So I think there, there's a number of challenges and of course the knee-jerk reaction will be, like you said, don't do it. But obviously it's happening. So we want to somehow try to manage this in the, in the best way possible. And, and I guess we don't even know what form that this discussion is going to be happening in. I mean, you know, are they going to send out, a, as you mentioned, a list of, of potential sites? Are they simply going to ask you for your general thoughts on this and simply impose it? I mean, because the city's in the same boat as you are. I mean, the city's not going to have a whole lot of say in this either. Yeah, and then that's it. Like, are we going to get a letter that says, you know, here's the proposed location, and then we have to react? Or do we get to set out some parameters and say, you know, here are considerations we'd like you to make. Ultimately, it's your decision. Let's not pretend it's a school board decision. Um, but also, if, you're, if it's genuine consultation, then, you know, what are the considerations you're actually making? Um, it could just be the proximity from a school. But as you know, depending on how a, a community is uh, situated, um, it could just be on that regular route to school where 90% of your kids walk. So it might not even necessarily be beside a school. So there's bigger considerations, you know, and municipal considerations that, that have to be taken into account. No different than an LCBO or other services or product, products that are inappropriate for students. Aside from the location, how's the board going to handle something like this? I mean, as, as student education is concerned, uh, it, will there be discussions in the classroom about this, about, uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you've found from your experience on the board, Todd, if you tell students not to do something, some of them are going to ignore that. <laughs> Yeah, or or, or slash most of them sometimes. will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Best way to and, get a kid to do something is tell them not to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, some adults as well. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> the but 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 that that's the big question. How do we approach this? Of course, it needs to be age appropriate, right? You're not going to have the same conversation with a grade one as you are a grade twelve student. So you really have to look at those strategies and, like I said, frame it not just necessarily around cannabis, but framing it around alcohol. Uh, mental health, um, addiction, um, you know, a number of those responsible choices that a student needs to make. And as a student, you know, goes through our system and, and as they get older, that's what we're teaching students, how to make their own decisions. It's not us necessarily just telling them what's right or wrong, because at the end of the day, when they are of age, they need to be making responsible choices, both now and obviously in the future. So that will be a discussion at some point that I guess is going to be up to the teachers to do that, or there'll be some directives from the board? There will be some directives from a board from the board. So we'll have resources and, and a central approach. We'll prepare our teachers. But um, as you can imagine, topics will come up in the classroom. So you know, any classroom teacher would be prepared to, to speak to the issue. Um, as they would, you know, any other topics that come up in their classroom. Well, and, and that's the concern I think parents should have, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. 
and some people, you know, when they heard about this legislation and, and the, the the pending uh, opening of these shops, I mean, you know, they, they've got this vision in their head of Cheech and Chong hanging around, and, and that's what this is going to be all about. And, and that's not what's happening with these places. I mean, medical marijuana is a whole different situation, and it's a very legitimate business enterprise, and, and uh, we, we get that, I think so, but at least you want to make sure that that education is not just for the students, but in some cases even for the parents. That's right, and I, I think it's really wrapping our heads around what this really means, uh, what it's going to look like. And I think if you, it's funny, I think if, if in the future you rewind and go back to this conversation we're having now, some of what we're discussing may seem odd, depending on how this plays out. But as you said earlier, it's good that we're having these discussions now and not kicking ourselves later on. Yeah, maybe much ado about nothing. We don't know where these things are going to be located, but uh, I'd rather have that now and, and deal with it rather than, you know, get, coming back in September and saying, what do you mean that's going to be one across the street? Yeah, and no, and no one likes surprises, so <laughs> that, yeah, that's the exactly. We can pull back, you know, in any of that mystery, then then we do solve problems for sure. Todd, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the update. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Take care. Todd White, uh, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Here's an interesting number. Uh, the code zeros in the city of Hamilton have dropped last month after a five-year high uh, back in the early part of uh, 2018. Uh, the numbers uh, were pretty significant and have been for quite some time, but the, the report that City Council got yesterday indicates that there was only one Code Zero event in March just a few weeks ago, which is rather interesting. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Mario Pastorero, President of Opsu Local 256. Uh, Mario, thanks for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. These are interesting numbers. Have we got the problem licked? <laughs> I don't think it's time to... Uh pop open the champagne. Not yet? Right yet. A little but premature, is it? I think so, but uh, obviously the numbers seem positive, and uh, perhaps uh, Mayor Eisenberger's efforts in bringing a heightened level of urgency to the issue and involve the senior managers within the hospital sector has had uh, a positive effect. All right, but you're the guys on the front line, and, and you know this is a statistic, and you're right, it's a very encouraging statistic, we get that. But uh, but you're there. Uh, you guys are out there on the streets every day. Uh, I, I'm going to just assume at this point, Mario, that maybe this is not as rosy as it, as it sounds right off the top. Uh, that Because uh, I know that you mentioned yesterday during the committee meeting that you guys have come pretty close to a number of these. It, it didn't actually happen, but the fact is that there's still stress in the system. The fact is our call volume, demands for service continue to increase. Uh, the elderly who comprise a significant uh, portion of our uh, our patients um, continue to rely on our service, and all the demographic data indicates that our call volume will continue to increase moving forward. So that's not going to change. Yes, we've been at the brink of code zeros on numerous occasions, and given that we don't track some of those measurements, we're just highlighting the issue of the code zeros. This seems to be a demonstrable decrease in code zeros. Doesn't mean the problem's gone away. And the concern, uh, obviously, from our perspective is that these efforts and measures may not be sustainable long term. And um, we can't track things over a month, month and a half. Let's see what it looks like in a year. And let's see what the root cause is. Uh, I believe, we believe that the root causes are unchanged. Increasing demands for our service, increasing demands for long-term care beds, and sicker patients requiring our services. Well, that's the thing that I found interesting about these statistics. Uh, and, and that's obviously one of the things about statistics. You can twist them and turn them any way you want. I mean, it's it's an encouraging number. But a lot of the stuff that you've talked about over the years, and I know that a lot of the things that you've talked to council about over the years, 
haven't really changed. Uh, I, I, I know the province has thrown some money at this, and, and there's been some attempts to try to do something about this. But you talked about staffing. You talked about geography. You talked about demographics. And, and I don't see that there's been a dramatic change in that over the last three months, yet the numbers are down. Correct. Uh, there has not been a significant change. And in the medical context, we like to deal with root causes, not just symptoms. Uh, we've dealt with symptoms in the past, and the province has ponied up millions of dollars to put short-term um, short-term solutions in place, including nurses that were supposedly supposed to uh, process patients quicker. That had no meaningful impact on the code zeros or the processing of patients. Uh, the bottom line is the healthcare sector is underfunded given the demands that are placed on our service. We have called out the provincial government because they fund or underfund uh, the hospitals that impact our ambulance service. Um, at the end of the day, our council has to make decisions based on need and based on what it can do in order to improve the level of service. And clearly, our call volume is not being reduced. It's increasing, and that's been well reported. And in fact, the Hamilton Spectator done a great job of highlighting that over the last week, um, essentially establishing what we've been saying. The actual data is that we have a disproportionate number of elderly, and it's those elderly that rely on our service. Um, to the ratio of three to one. Um, three times more likely uh, to get a, a call for medical assistance from the elderly than the non-elderly. Um, so th- those numbers haven't changed. I'm hopeful that moving forward, um, the code zeros drop. Um, I, I just don't want to place too much credence on short-term data and speculate on the reason for it. The root causes are unchanged, though. Mario, you talk with other uh, communities and, and the folks that are providing that service there. How do we stack up as opposed to Toronto, Ottawa, places like that? Well, we talk to medics across the province. And yeah. In Peel Region, for example, they don't know what a Code Zero event is. They don't experience it. So does that mean that they don't have patients that are sick? No, it means that they've adequately... Uh, invested in their health care system, including their ambulance service. Uh, Niagara, uh, for example, has adequately invested in its ambulance service and has more uh, paramedics on the road, more staffed ambulances on the road on a racial basis compared to Hamilton. So they don't, they're not facing some of our challenges. So for whatever reason, I mean, as a community, we have unique needs. One of those unique needs is that we have a uh, disproportionate amount of the elderly and the elderly do rely on our services. We have to meet that demand with adequate frontline ambulance resourcing. And unless that's dealt with head-on, we'll continue to apply Band-Aids and promises and hope that these short-term solutions carry us through. Uh, It's unlikely they will, though. But, and again, you talked about ratios, because you can't really do an apples-to-apples comparison when you're talking about cities or communities that are different sizes. But, uh, but again, when you start looking at some of those other communities, there are some geographic elements to this. I mean, uh, you tend to forget about it, and I know you guys are very cognizant of this, but when you actually look at a map and see what, what the city of Hamilton, I mean, we're talking, going, you know, basically going from Beamsville almost all the way up to, to near Cambridge. I mean, this is a huge geographic area that you have to cover. It's a vast geographical area with unique needs. We have a harbor, we have an escarpment, we have an airport. So we have needs that, um, and unique needs that other municipalities do not have. And, and again, I continue to um, enforce the issue that a very high uh, and disproportionate amount of the elderly make up our community. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We just have to address the fact that the elderly do rely on our services and they rely on our services three times more often than the non-elderly. And all the demographics point to that increasing. 
and we have to deal with those demographics, those realities now versus when it's before us. Um, we continually ask council uh, to invest in our ambulance service. We got one additional ambulance uh, for 2018, which is actually the continuance of a temporary uh, unit. Um, we're hopeful we can push council to continue to invest in our service and to deal with the increasing call volume that we face, and we will continue to face moving forward, Bill. We're going to ask you about something else that you brought up uh, about a year and a half or so ago, and it's a real concern that wasn't getting a whole lot of attention, and that's burnout by your members. Uh, when you've got this kind of pressure and this kind of call volume, uh, and, and obviously, as you mentioned, it's, it, those numbers aren't really de- going down at all. Uh, there has been some concern about burnout, about, uh, well, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder in some cases, or just plain fatigue and illness as a result. Is, is that being addressed properly? Uh, we're trying to make some inroads into in those mental health care issues. We've established teams and, and programs to deal with it, but the reality is um, working in the city of Hamilton as a paramedic is a very demanding uh, place to work. Uh, it's recognized provincially that if uh, a paramedic works in Hamilton for two years, it's, it equates to four or five years in other communities. So th- that only lasts for so long. You can only drive those that are um, taking care of patients for um, so so long. There's got to be some reprieve, but we've never really made it about the paramedics. You know, our, our paramedics respond regardless of weather, regardless of the call volume, regardless of whether they've had an opportunity to have a meal break, they respond. There is impacts, however, long-term in, in uh, increased absenteeism, increased burnout, and increased mental health care issues. And those are also factors. They're not highlighted, but they can't be denied. Um, unfortunately, um, it doesn't get the marquee uh, notice that um, some of these other issues uh, get, but our paramedics do a great job, work under very challenging conditions, and deal with uh, a blistering pace on a day-to-day basis in responding to calls, Bill. And you know, we're proud of our paramedics, um, and we hope that City Council understands that you know, they, they have to help us help our patients, and they can best do that by investing adequately in our ambulance service. Mario, thanks so much for the time. Really do appreciate it. As you say, some encouraging numbers here, but uh, uh, clearly we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, we can only hope that uh, this uh, trend continues anyway. So much for, uh, for what we've got so far, though. We do appreciate that, and uh, we'll stay with, uh, in touch with you guys as we follow some of these numbers. Absolutely, and thank you for the time, Bill. Okay, good talking with you again. Mayor Pastorero, of course, is the president of uh, OPSU Local 256. And, and, and again, I, I don't want to you know downplay this and suggest that it's not important, because it is, I mean, the numbers like this. But uh, when you look at the, the challenges that, uh, that uh, paramedics are facing, uh, and it, it, a lot of it has to do with staffing. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And, and I guess when you say where we are today is, is, is a much better circumstance, you have to put that in the context of, of the, the debate that's been going on about this for quite some time. And it has been going on for years. This is not a new phenomenon for the city of Hamilton uh, when they're dealing with ambulances and the availability of ambulances. Uh, and for the longest time, uh, it was pretty difficult, frankly, uh, to get the city council to actually admit that there was a concern. And there were some staff back in those days that didn't seem to think that this was a, a monumental problem. Uh, there have been some staff changes in the meantime, and uh, I think a much better attitude uh, towards addressing some of these concerns. But it's it's not simply a staff decision, and it's not just a city council decision, because let's face it, I mean, this is all part of the, the health care 
uh, paradigm, and and obviously that includes hospitals, it includes long term care facilities, it includes uh, well nursing, certainly does home care nursing has got to be part of this, uh, and on and on it goes, and and those are things that the city doesn't really have a whole lot of control over, but certainly they are factors in this. Let's uh, do a short time out, and then we're going to come back and uh, talk about the, uh, You know what I, I'd rather do? I'll tell you what. What, what I want to do here is talk about some of those issues. So we'll do the break in a few minutes, uh, Jake. But first of all, I want to bring uh, Michael Sanderson in, uh, to the discussion here. Uh, Michael, of course, is the uh, the chief for the city of Hamilton uh, for the emergency services and for paramedics, and, uh, and obviously uh, talked about this report with city councilors yesterday. Mike, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Well, we had Mario on uh, Postero just a couple of minutes ago talking about uh, the impact this is having on frontline numbers. And, and, and I think the message here is, look, we're not out of the woods right now, but, I mean, this is an encouraging number that you presented to Council yesterday. Uh, it certainly is, Bill. I'm, I'm very happy uh, with the change in the process, and we've had a significant decrease, significant opportunities. Uh, and it has a, a huge impact not only on our staff, uh, but on the patients we end up serving as well, and, and that's a, a significant challenge for us. How have you addressed some of those uh, problems? Because uh, this is, as I was just saying before you jumped in here, Mike, this is this is something that is not necessarily within your control. I mean, uh, the service is there, and you provide that service, so, so that and that staffing issue, of course, falls onto your desk. But you're dealing with hospitals, you're dealing with uh, home care, you're dealing with an awful lot of other things that can influence these numbers. Yeah, it is, Bill, and, and what we haven't been able to do, and, and I don't think we're going to have a significant opportunity to do, is to actually reduce the number of calls that we're going to. Uh, the call volumes haven't changed. We're continuing to have paramedics respond in day in and day out. Uh, the call volumes are going up about 5% a year, and they have been for the last seven years. So so that really isn't changing in the process. We're, we're working on the edges of that with community paramedicine, uh, and, and we have to rely on the hospitals to move the patients through the hospital system and make room in the emergency department for the incoming patients. And I think that's really the, the story here is uh, that they've been successful, at least in the last few months, in, in being able to do that. Uh, we really haven't modified that much in terms of what we're doing. Uh, we're talking to them more. Uh, but the real change is uh, somehow they've been able to achieve a bit of flow through the hospitals. What about that, that process and that procedure? Because uh, there's always a concern about offloading and how long that takes. And, and, and I guess there's probably nothing more frustrating for you and your staff than to know that, look, they should be back out on the road, but they've got to wait until uh, the hospital is able to accommodate the people that you bring in. Is, is that moving or is there a, a possibility that maybe even that protocol could be uh, revamped? Uh, we are looking at changing some of the protocols on the bill, but it certainly takes uh, cooperation on both uh, the hospital side and, sure. and on our staff side and education for our staff. Uh, the challenge is that the ministry does dictate to us what transfer of care constitutes and how we end up doing that. So we have to be very mindful of making sure that our paramedics are not being put at risk of doing something inappropriately uh, through setting up the wrong procedure and the wrong policies, but at the same time making sure that the hospitals are able to, to accept the patients that can be accepted quickly. Uh, for example, patients that are ambulance that really don't need paramedics to look after them in the long term. What about those call volumes and, and the number that are going up? There was some concern initially, uh, this was, a, I guess, a few years ago, Mike, even probably predating your time uh, in the position, that, uh, that there was a concern that maybe some of those 911 calls were not really necessary. Is, is that still an issue for you? Well, I think it's always going to be an issue. It's been an issue in every service that I've worked with for as long as I've worked in the system, Bill. The, the challenge is we don't always know, uh, particularly at the paramedic end that's responding to the call, whether the call needs a paramedic until we arrive on the scene. The emergency is often the mind of the caller, not of the responder. Mm-hmm. 
so, so we need to do some education of the public. That needs to be ongoing. Uh, I would really like to see some changes in the dispatch protocols. Niagara has been successful in with operation of their own dispatch centre in, in terms of managing uh, calls at the front end, at the dispatch end, uh, to cue them off or to, to tear them off into other areas or other responses rather than sending a paramedic response. And I think that's where the ministry is headed now with uh, the changes in legislation that they're starting to enable that. Mario mentioned to us that there are other jurisdictions that don't experience these uh, these code zeros at all. What are they doing that we're not doing, or vice versa? I mean, it, it seems as if uh, you know if there's something to be learned there that we should be jumping on that. And I know that you do talk to other uh, communities about this, but uh, are there best practices that we could actually develop here that we're maybe not doing yet? Uh, certainly, and we talk to those hospitals throughout. Not the hospital, but the uh, the paramedic chiefs on a regular basis. Uh, the practices that we're doing as a paramedic service are really the same as what they're doing in, in the communities that are not having the offload delays. Uh, the, the changes are within the hospital capacity, and it's also within the home care capacity in the various communities that they're serving. Uh, there are some differences in it. We have some very high-level, extremely competent and capable tertiary care facilities in the city of Hamilton, a lot of expertise, a lot of specialties, and, and that comes with its own challenges. Uh, we need to have the ability to move patients through the hospitals into the home care, into long-term care, into chronic care, uh, and some of the other communities that are not having the offload delays have managed that. Other hospitals in those systems have also gone very aggressively through the lean management processes, looking at lean Six Sigma processes, uh, mapping out the processes on arrival in the hospital, mapping out what happens as they move through the emergency department, uh, and looking at all the different changes they can make. And, and I think some have been uh, a bit farther on that than we have been within our systems. There's always a concern about staffing and about the number of units on the road. And, and, and when you hear the story of Code Zeroes, the, the immediate reaction is going to be, well, you just need more people out there. That's all there is to it. Uh, is that the solution or, or is, is, it, is it the management of, of the staff that you have? Well, I think that the answer is actually both of those, Bill. As the call volume goes up, as we're increasing 5% a year, that's going to create or bring with it the, the need to have more paramedics on the road. And I think Mario and myself are, are both in agreement on the issue of making sure we have the, the right level of staff to respond to the calls that come into the system. I don't believe, and I agree with counsel, and most counselors that I've talked to, I, I don't agree that we should be putting more paramedics on the road just simply to deal with the offload delay issues, uh, because if we start to staff the emergency department using municipal tax dollars, that that's not the right approach to it from my perspective. Uh, I think we need to have hospitals managing that flow and bringing it to the processor to the level uh, that they should be doing. Having said that, in the interim, there's probably a blend where we may have to have some additional paramedics as they're getting their processes together to reduce the hospital offload times to the level that it is. But when you get to that point, and, and obviously you're tracking this, and at some point you and, and already have uh, come to the conclusion that, yes, we do have to increase staff, or do we have to maybe even add another unit, it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap at all. It's about $1.3 million uh, all in cost for, for wages and benefits uh, for back for replacement for the vehicles and the equipment uh, on an annual basis. The ministry, of course, picks up 50% of that, but they don't pick up the 50% until the second year, and that creates a second challenge for the councillors in terms of having to fund the full amount up front. That's been one of the uh, the issues brought forward in the summit last week. Yeah, and, and again, when you talked about formula and, and, and you know the, the protocol that's in place here, uh, there needs to be a wholesome discussion about the province and their, their particular uh, input into this too, and not just financial, but I mean from an overall standpoint. And, and, and again, I guess that's got to be a, a frustration for you to... to, to I guess be preaching that message to them and uh, well sometimes it falls on deaf ears because I know they have financial concerns as well. 
I, I think that that's absolutely right, uh, and we are preaching the message, and we'll continue to, to push on the issues. I, I think that the, there is a role for the province to play very strongly in terms of making sure hospitals are given the proper direction and that they have some guidelines to follow. I know that the, the offload time with the hospital should not be an optional process. It shouldn't be dependent on uh, what uh, an individual area has. It, it should be something that the ministry should be aggressively looking at and ensuring that doing. Otherwise, uh, the Ministry of Health is, is utilizing municipal tax dollars to substitute health care within the hospitals. And, and again, that's not sustainable, particularly at the municipal level. No, absolutely not. Uh, and I guess the most encouraging end of the, uh, to this discussion here is the fact that, uh, as I've talked to you over the years and to Mario, uh, you guys are on the same page and you're working col- collaboratively to try to make this thing happen. I, mean, I, I know there's always going to be some differences of opinion sometimes on, on details, but uh, but there's, there seems to be a common thrust here to make this thing go away, or at least to try to manage it. It's always good to have a labor group that we're working with uh, that, that we can actually agree on issues, uh, we can agree on the intent, and one of those things that Mary and I most agree on is the impact uh, that these problems and these challenges have on our staff, uh, his union members, and my employees. Uh, as we're working through it, uh, these are very difficult times. Uh, paramedics are, are challenged from going from call to call, and I know Mary was probably talked to you. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to this as I'm at a meeting in Toronto right now, but uh, he's probably talked about meal breaks. He's probably talked about the impact of shift overrun, uh, the impact on the mental health of our paramedics as they're being pushed uh, to, to respond to issues and, and really beyond their control. And certainly we need to figure out ways to help manage that better, and uh, we need to continue working on those. Yeah, you'll have to get the podcast, Mike, because we did touch on all those things, but you know that. I'm singing to the choir here, I guess. Listen, I know you had to jump out of a meeting to join us today. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Bill. Take care. Mike Sanderson, of course, uh, Chief of the Paramedics for the City of Hamilton. Uh, Code Zero is down significantly. We can only hope that trend continues. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.